is A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library Podcast. And welcome to the next installment of our ongoing series on information literacy. We are bringing you exclusive interviews with journalists, librarians, professors, and teachers, professionals in the realms of communicating accurate information with coherency. But these professionals are also unique because they've cultivated a profound appreciation for the risks of misinformation and the severe dangers of disinformation. And our guests today are both staffers at WDET, Detroit's NPR news station. That's 101.9 FM. And it's Jake Neer, who is a reporter and producer. He works with Stephen Henderson on their daily morning news show, Detroit Today, as well as covering Michigan's political news. And then Shiraz Ahmed, who is also joining us, also from WDET. He is the digital content editor and their engagement editor, and uh, also brings a background in film to his role at the radio station. So we'll be talking about the influence of visuals as well as the influence that broadcast journalists have. But what we're going to do real quick before we jump into that interview is a quick equip when it comes to information literacy. We have mentioned Mike Caulfield on this podcast. He's the digital literacy expert at Washington State, and he is working with the American Democracy Project, and he has developed a new information literacy tool that's currently being used with college students that uh, Michelle is going to tell us more about. Michelle Williamson, a librarian, joining me. Hi, Jeff. So if you have been taught an information literacy checklist before, it's probably crap. And no, that's not a judgment on the method. That's what it's called. C-R-A-A-P. CRAP stands for Currency, Relevance, Accuracy, Authority, and Purpose. One reason this is now an outdated method is because it wasn't actually created for the web. In fact, CRAP wasn't designed to evaluate the veracity of sources at all. It was first designed as a tool for librarians to do collection development, or criteria that we use for selecting library materials. Mike Caulfield's SIFT method was created specifically for fact-checking stories on the internet. It is a quick and easily memorized method for identifying fake news and how you can do your part to stop the spread of misinformation. Mike Caulfield calls these the four moves, the things that you can do before you share on social media or even just before you decide to be outraged by something someone else has posted. The first is S. Stop. Ask yourself if you are familiar with the source of information and whether you trust it. If the answer to both is yes, good. If not, you have a little digging to do. The second reason you stop is to remember your purpose. It's too easy for social media to become a time suck. Decide whether you want to verify if the source is reputable or if you're just doing deeper research on the topic. Deeper research will entail tracing individual claims. I stands for investigate the source. Google is your friend. And this is where for newspapers and many websites, a quick and dirty search should be sufficient. If you search Wikipedia for information on these sources, a cursory glance will tell you how long the publication has been around and what political bent it may have. If the source isn't in Wikipedia, Google it and see what others say about it. The less information there is on a source, the more skeptical you should be. F is for find trusted coverage. Sometimes it isn't about investigating a particular source, but more about verifying whether a story is true. In this case, ignore the source altogether and just search to see who else is reporting it. If only one source has a story, that is suspect. 
unless it is a well-known publication with an exclusive scoop, in which case other sources will start reporting on that story. T. Trace claims, quotes, and media to the original source. Oftentimes, quotes and photographs are cited out of context. In order to get to the bottom of a story, it's helpful to trace these pieces of information back to where they came from. Right now, a lot of articles are citing studies and research around the coronavirus. It's pretty easy to find these studies yourself, and even just reading the summary in the beginning can give you an idea of whether the article's claims are accurate. If you'd like to see more specifically about how these moves work, go to infodemic.blog and then to the basic skills for some short tutorials. Thank you, Michelle. That is SIFT. So stop yourself. Investigate the source. Find trusted coverage and trace claims, quotes, and media to their original source. We'll have more information on SIFT linked in the show notes. But without further ado, we'll roll on into our interview with pros from the broadcast journalism realm. Jake Neer, reporter and producer. Shiraz Ahmed, digital content editor and engagement editor at WDET. When, uh, Jake, when people talk about quote-unquote fake news, they're usually implying misinformation that's uh, threaded into print publications, disinformation that's being presented by maybe pundits on television. Where do you see broadcast journalists fitting into this? And and do you walk maybe a similar tightrope that a print journalist would do? And and in what ways uh, are you guys also not immune to indictments of fake news? I think fake news has become an interesting term now, especially in 2020, because... I think it started as something very specific. I think we started hearing it a lot in 2016. And it started off as news that was blatantly wrong, that was that was meant to uh, mislead. And it was popping up on social media a lot, uh, sites that, you know, were created, in other words, to, to mislead people. And now it's morphed into something way less defined. You know, there there are there's fake news accusations against real news because people don't uh, like the the way that it's presented or they don't think that it confirms their personal beliefs. So you get a lot of people claiming fake news uh, against, you know, legitimate news sources. There's there's fake news uh, as, as sort of a cultural term, right, that, you know, it's it's sort of a, a catchphrase these days for anything that you don't agree with or, you know, anything that, um, you know, or it could be a joke. And so I think, you know, a lot of people are now calling Fox News fake news. A lot of people are calling CNN fake news because they and, and, and bad reporting, reporting that sets out to do a good job, but maybe doesn't, you know, maybe gets the facts wrong in some way or, or goes too early, uh, as we've seen happen to legitimate news sources in the past, although the more legitimate the news source, the less that's supposed to happen. So that's sort of a long way of saying that I think uh, fake news means whatever you want it to right now, you know, and, and a lot of that can be confirmation bias. So, of course, you know, in in the broadcast world, there are a lot of people who see the things that we're putting on the air or putting up online who think that uh, it somehow cuts against their own personal beliefs. And so they will absolutely level, levy the, the fake news uh, label against us and, and our colleagues. But I think the, the thing for us to understand as journalists is that there is a process. This isn't this isn't something that is uh, a secret. Our, our the way that we work and the the whole process of getting the best information possible is one that's reliable. Uh, and sometimes, you know, again, uh, there there are things that can get out there that may not not tell the full the full story. But as long as you are uh, sticking to to that that way of working, 
you know, you're doing the best job that you can. And all of us are human. We all have confirmation bias. Uh, there's not a single human being that doesn't. But but again, you know, I think we are always striving to paint the whole picture in, in the best way we can. That is a great way to end your answer, Jake, because my next question is about pictures. And that goes to Shiraz, because you we're, we're talking about how the information we're kind of hearing over the radio could influence us. But Shiraz is digital content editor. Can you talk about how you have to be conscious about the influence that visuals can can hold? Uh, I know you have a background in film, too. Could you talk about that? Could you talk about how you have to be aware of that power as well and have to be, guys, I guess, kind of careful, too? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something we're really conscious of because of the atomization of news. A lot of people get their news through social media. And oftentimes, unfortunately, what we'll see is a lot of people will just instantly react to the headline and the photo and whatever kind of copy we, we pair along with it and not click through or not read the full thing or not listen to the audio. So we're very conscious of the photos we're associating with stories to make sure that one, they don't show that we're trying to sensationalize in some way. And two, that they're kind of accurately reflecting what the content of the story is. One example that that might not be so controversial is, you know, doing a story about flooding and, and making sure you're using a photo that's actually a flooding in the area or doing a photo about Lake Michigan and making sure you're showing the right lake, right? But it can be hard, especially not just with us, but across the media landscape and especially in local news, a lot of uh, budgets have been cut because local media is really struggling. So a lot of photographers have lost their jobs and, and you know, photography is a skill and you got to pay people. So people have resorted to all sorts of kind of weird things just to get photos. And I think what we've seen is a lot of times the visual will tell the story, especially like with the recent Black Lives Matters protest. And so the way you present the photo is is crucial to making sure you're not only communicating accurately what's happening on the ground, which can be very difficult, but also that you're communicating that you're evenly presenting what's happening on the ground, right? You're not trying to show some sort of dramatic, grotesque kind of perversion of, of what's happening. So it's tough because like half the time, and Jake can actually speak to this, a lot of times we rely on what we call stock photos, barn really stock photos. You know, Jake is really great at this, going out and getting photos around Detroit of stuff we know we're going to keep coming back to, buildings, places, people. And then we have a pretty rich tradition now through our Frame By series and most recently through COVID Diaries of getting photos, of commissioning photographers to capture a particular type of story that will tell a story in a specific way and have like a specific visual treatment where you have, you know, they, by documentary, by nonfiction rules, they can't be too manipulated because people expect to see what is real and what is true. But, you know, they can be presented in a way that's a bit more personal, if you will, and have some sort of kind of artistic imprint on them. But that's all hard. So there's a lot of thinking that goes into it and it's hard with limited resources. Jake, when we consider this era of fake news, where it seems like there's increased cynicism and tendencies for us to want to confirm our own personal biases, as you mentioned before, uh, we'd love to hear about how all of this noise and polarization has influenced or informed the way that you approach your work and frame your reporting for the medium of radio. Yeah, hopefully it's influenced us uh, as little as possible in, in a lot of ways, right? That as journalists, like I was saying before, that there is there's a way to do this. There's a way to get good information that is tried and true. And there's a way to present that information that a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, is tried and true and in a lot of ways is constantly changing 
but I don't, I, you know, I don't think that it has influenced the way that we get the information. I do think that it reflects in the actual content of what we're talking about. Uh, not that we're we're um, trying to reflect one side or the other necessarily, but just that uh, we we talk about it directly a lot these days. So I think that that's maybe the the biggest influence there on on increasing polarization is that it it colors everything that we talk about. I mean, there's almost nothing that you can talk about on the air that hasn't somehow become polarized, which is, you know, sort of the sad reality of, of where we, we're at right now. I mean, the fact that that wearing a mask is is political these days, you know, that is that is, that is a sad reflection of where we're at. Just today, I'm, I'm writing a script for the podcast that I host with Shana Roth and MLive. And we were talking about how campaign has campaigning has changed and some candidates have decided not to go door to door and some still feel like they have to go door to door. And the point that one of our guests made was, well, if you go door to door, you can immediately offend someone whether or not you're wearing a mask. So me as a journalist, as a radio journalist, I was like, I want to make that point because it's a really great point. But then I also don't want to reflect that that is a political I, I don't want to I don't want to double down on that being a political thing. So I, I you know, and I'm still we haven't recorded yet. So like you're hearing this in real time. I'm still thinking about how best to present that. And, and right now, I think basically we have to say we have to make that point and then say, but this is not political. This is it's backed by science and it's the law. Right. But even by doing that, there are going to be some people who who listen to that and go, oh, he's taking a side, right? So that's the uh, that's the conundrum that we're all in right now. Yeah, it seems like a very tight rope to try to walk. <laughs> Shiraz, do you have any insights to share with listeners about the ways in which digital content can be masquerading as disinformation? Or can you possibly comment on the relatively recent phenomenon of deep fake videos? Yeah, so I'll start with the deep fake question because so deep fakes kind of emerged in the, the media landscape a couple of years ago. And it's this idea that, you know, with improvements in video technology and, and editing technology, that you can essentially make videos of people saying or doing things that they haven't actually done. And you can kind of imagine the almost science fiction fear that brings on of having, you know, big public leaders saying something that's absolutely not true, right? Even most recently where we saw the Twitter Twitter hack where very prominent figures like tweeted out some sort of scam about Bitcoin. So that's like a real concern, but it's also like an evolution of of kind of a long-term conflict within visual mediums and digital media. Like you can see going back to like the early Soviet Union where they would edit out you know, party members out of photos as they kind of grew out of favor with the party establishment, right? Uh, and there's like a long history of this. Today, what we'll see, I think what we see with the deep fakes that people talk about, that stuff is a little, a little further away. But what we see happening, like literally today in this campaign is you see, for instance, I think the president kind of boosted a video of Speaker Nancy Pelosi a little while ago where her voice was sped up and slowed down to make it seem that she was slurring her speech and kind of implying that she had some sort of medical or cognitive condition. And that's like very easy to do with just basic video editing software. And it's kind of designed to be something that's not noticeable to the average viewer. So just in general, everybody should be skeptical of, of media coming from sources they're either not familiar with or that inherently kind of look untrustworthy. And unfortunately, because the tools to do this 
are so prevalent and, and relatively cheap, it really goes back to kind of try, knowing your sources, right? Knowing where this media is coming from, you know, checking the account, making sure it's it's an, like a factual account that obeys, as Jake said, obeys some principles of how this stuff is gathered and used, right? All media is edited, not all media is edited in good faith. Yeah. Okay, so... Jake, earlier you said that, of course, radio is not immune to accusations of fake news. I was, and maybe maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but I always just presumed that, you know, independent journalists, public journalists, journalists focusing on the community like WDET might get a bit of surplus goodwill trust. And, and maybe they do. Maybe they still do. But can you talk about that and how it might inform your approach to your work and how you just, you know, kind of carry that trust with you, whether or not it... it uh, informs the way you work? So I think this is an interesting question because most of the feedback that you get from listeners is negative, right? <laughs> you know, people who don't like the things that you do are the ones that are going to say something about it. It's they're, sort of like, the ones you know, want to talk. Yeah. Right. It's sort of like restaurant reviews, right? <laughs> like, I mean, some people might, might go to the restaurant and be like, this was so great. I'm going to leave a Yelp review, but more likely if there's like, you know, hair in your food, you're going to want to write a <laughs> Yelp review for that reason. Right. So, you know, it's the same thing with journalism. We, the, the feedback that I usually get from listeners is a lot more sort of colored from social media re reactions. And, and so we have a lot of sort of extreme, I would say leaning more on the far right spectrum of people that lately have been commenting on our, on our, um, our Facebook posts and things like that. So, I mean, that's what you get the most of. But I think as public radio journalists, we also know that most of the people listening are doing it because we are one of the mo most trustworthy sources for news. Uh, and, and, and it's just sort of something that I, for me is always in the back of my mind that the, the interactions that we have with our audience, fortunately, I work on a call-in show, so we get a lot of people who call in and talk about how great the topic is, that sort of thing. Um, I don't think our news reporters get nearly as much of that, and I kind of wish that they would hear more of the appreciation that, that is out there for their work. But I think that, that we know. I mean, you know, there's studies that show that NPR and public radio are, are more trusted than other news sources. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we all went into public radio in the first place is because we trusted it in the first place and we knew that we knew why it was trustworthy. So um, I, I think that we have a lot of uh, a high level of confidence in the work that we do and the way that it's perceived. Uh, but you do have to work against a lot of the, the negative feedback sometimes, too. Shiraz, does that kind of play into your role as engagement editor? Does that kind of require, you know, building trust? Does that require kind of being, I guess, sensitive to that whole like guttural reaction you might get on social media? Can you talk about that other side of your job? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that uh, we're, I'm really conscious of. And I think we all are because, you know, we're all on Facebook. And it's something that I learned. I learned pretty early, even before DET, that you know, 95% of complaints, even if people are very angry, like you have to take them seriously and you have to, you have to be extremely patient in how you address things. Uh, even if a lot of times people will automatically go to kind of attacking your integrity or attacking the integrity of, of your publication. And I don't, I don't want to discount all people's complaints. Like I complain about the, you know, quote unquote, the media all the time, but it's something where like, like Jake said, we have a process and for us, it becomes kind of a, 
you know, usually I'm not, I'm not in programming, you know, I, I usually kind of work with content that's being developed already. So if somebody comes with like a complaint and, and it comes to me and, and my colleague Maida, uh, you know, we'll almost play with detective, like, okay, what is this person talking about? How did this happen? What was the thinking here? What was the process here? And, you know, often that can take, you know, either a couple of hours to a couple of days maybe to kind of track down what they're complaining about, why they're complaining about it, how we feel about it. Was there some sort of internal failure? Did we present this accurately? And then a lot of workshopping of our response. And, you know, it's not always like Jake makes a good point. Like sometimes it's just people upset that we're highlighting something like mask wearing that's, you know, widely agreed upon, but there's some people that are very angry about it. But other times it's people who have kind of a, a ax to grind a little bit, uh, who may be approaching it entirely in good faith. And we're just essentially just trying to manage like their understanding of what we do and the understanding that we need to cover what's happening out there. And we're trying to cover things in kind of a, the fairest way possible. So a lot of it's just like, people are going to come at you hard, like Jake said, because just in our culture today, coming at people hard is just the reason, the way you get a response. But for us, it's kind of learned empathy and, and a whole lot of patience and not discounting anybody's, anybody's you know, complaints. Cause like I said, that's like, it's like your neighbor, right? Of course. Of course. <laughs> Especially in local media. Of course. We're familiar with that at the public library too. Right. Um, Shiraz, in the same vein of uh, social media, what concerns you most about the risks and impacts of misinformation and disinformation? A lot of it is, is, and this is especially important in times of crisis, to understand that basically anybody who has kind of the slightest bit of digital competency these days can set up something that kind of looks like a semi-legitimate publication, right? It's not that hard to set up a Facebook page. It's not that hard to set up a website. And with kind of the the balkanization of the media, the fact that people can get a lot of their news over YouTube or just over social media, people can can be extra susceptible to spreading quote unquote, you know, fake news, oftentimes literally fake news, but oftentimes news that's, you know, may have a kernel of truth or may even have kind of sourcing like a bunch of links attached, but has been skewed in a way to essentially send a message that may not be necessarily entirely true. And, you know, this is, like I said, this is, we're kind of perpetually in a crisis right now in this pandemic. And early on, you know, people were sharing, I'm sure Jake can speak to this too. People were sharing like people who I trust who are generally good news consumers were sharing things that I was like, this is, this is, pretty off the wall, you know, stuff like, oh, my my sister-in-law's cousin's boyfriend works for the Department of Homeland Security and they're saying this or something. And, you know, what I say is when people would send me that, either I'd, you know, I'd, I'd ignore it and, <laughs> and I'd just kind of not entertain it, or I'd Google it and try and see if there is kind of established reporting on it. And unfortunately, a lot of these things especially internationally, but also in America, a lot of these things spread in semi-private spaces, things like WhatsApp groups, closed Facebook groups. So like we're kind of in an age where, you know, you don't always have the ability where you know a journalist to kind of check things for you and have that bit of, you know, news competency. So everybody almost has to be on guard for things that, you know, just aren't right. And it's kind of, I like to say, if it if it seems outlandish or if it seems extraordinary, which a lot of things, especially this year, seem extraordinary, <laughs> like the first thing you should do is Google it and see if anybody else is reporting on it. 
Like if there's any substantiation. Yeah. Can I, can I dovetail off this a little bit? Cause this, this hits on something that I really wanted to talk about. Uh, Actually just today is the first day that I ever reported something to Facebook as false news. So it was a perfect, perfect timing for this, but it's such a good example of what Shiraz was talking about. And let me pull up the the notes. I actually took down notes because I knew I'd be talking to you guys today. So there is a site called Great Lakes News, which, you know, Great Lakes News, that sounds that sounds like it could be legit. It's got a nice logo and they've put up a bunch of stories, but they put up a post. uh, I think it was yesterday that said breaking news. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has defunded the Michigan State Police and the prisons. Executive Order 2020-155 slashes tens of millions from the state, Michigan State Police and Department of Corrections. Now, this got a ton of shares. You know, people really latched onto this quickly. And uh, what's what's interesting about it is that um, the what actually happened was relatively uncontroversial. It was part of a bipartisan agreement between the governor and the Republican-led legislature to balance the budget this year with this financial crisis and replace those cuts with federal coronavirus relief dollars. So, you know, one phone call from Great Lakes News could have could have determined that that what they were what they were reporting was extremely misleading, if not just blatantly false. And clearly the site wasn't all that interested in journalism, but also as a news consumer, I think that to dovetail again off of what Shiraz is saying, if you see something on a site as unknown um, and sort of unestablished as something like Great Lakes News, but it's nowhere else like the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News, Bridge, Michigan, MLive, WDET, or any of the NPR stations in Michigan, those are all outlets with full-time state government reporters. I think it's really important to ask yourself, whether, you know, whether or not that's something that can possibly be legitimate. I mean, if you have the entire press corps ignoring something as explosive as the governor defunding Michigan State Police, I can maybe say with 99.99999% certainty that that's not a legitimate story. Uh, But that takes an extra step. I mean, most people won't even read a full article these days, try to get them to actually Google another news source to, to do that. But I would highly, highly recommend to everyone you know even even if you do trust a a news source uh very well uh, it's always worth to you know going and and looking up what other uh, publications that you trust are also reporting because people often get certain sides of the story and uh you know even if it's just supplemental right that you might just hear different voices in different different publications but at the very least you'll know whether something is up with a story like that right and actually jake michelle has one more question for you but i want to jump really quickly over to, to shiraz because he was giving us some great tips and Shiraz, isn't there a way that you could actually do a search in google for an image and just find out that it's like re- recycled stock and just kind of maybe miss leading yeah you can reverse image search by just downloading the photo and uploading it to google image search and it'll show you all the other places which which is great like you said because sometimes it'll be like look at this photo of like something burning in the street or something right. look what these horrible people are doing right and then you search it it's a photo from like bosnia in like the 90s or something right. like yeah that's that's extremely common you're right that's a good tip to know <laughs> Well, Jens, we have time for one more question. Jake, in uh, print and visual media, we talk about confirmation bias 
the messaging can be so sensationalized and even warp the facts so that it fits a certain view of the world. Can that happen in radio? I think so. I mean, confirmation bias can touch anything that you hear or see or read, I think. And I think, you know, if, if we were out to be a propaganda arm for whatever, I, I think I have some, I, I would have some great ideas for how to play to people's confirmation bias, which means that you have to go, you have to make a big effort to make sure that you're not playing into those confirmation biases. I mean, that you're presenting something as factually as possible. You could absolutely use a piece of sound, something as simple as a chant or sirens or gunshots or anything, you know, something that sounds like something that it's not uh, and put it next to uh, some copy or read something on the air that paints a very different picture. I mean, I think that that in some ways radio can be as powerful a medium as any other one in that regard, because uh, something I actually love about public radio is that sounds paint a picture that you sort of form yourself in your head. Right. And that's true with reading, too, uh, with with uh, radio. It's even more powerful because you're hearing something uh, with your ears and then you visualize it immediately. So I think that there are there's a lot to that. But but of course, uh, it's something that we're always asking ourselves. I mean, one, I don't know if this is a perfect example for this question, but recently with the uh, there were primary elections in Kentucky. And uh, this was uh, a situation where Kentucky only had one precinct open to vote in person uh, in the two most populous counties in the state. And there was a scene where where people were banging on the door at this precinct when the precinct was closing, saying, let us in, let us in. Uh, and, and that paints a picture of people not being allowed to vote. Uh, and and elections not running smoothly and 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 locking people out in a lot of ways literally in this case we ended up we we used that audio but we did a lot of explaining right around that uh, saying this was the most dramatic episode of this now these people were let in afterward to you know to and they were all able to cast their votes and and the process actually went very smoothly in these states in terms of making sure that people were were able to vote but without that explanation if we just played that audio and didn't provide the context i think you would come to very different conclusions. I actually think I saw I saw that video on on Facebook used in a way that did paint a very different picture of how that election played out. So, and if your if your confirmation bias is that people are not being able to vote, or you know that there there are systems in place to keep people from voting, that plays that that absolutely um, you know affects affects your view of what happened. And I think that it probably can use it very easily to confirm those biases. Context is everything. Mm -hmm. Context is everything. I remember when I was in journalism school, the framing a story was just one class, one lesson, but now it's become like a daily discipline for you guys to be. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. To be conscious of that. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on the Ferndale Library podcast. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And that is our episode, our second installment on information literacy. It's an ongoing series. We'll have three more episodes covering this where Michelle Williamson will be joining me. I am Jeff Milo. Kelly Bennett was running the board today as we welcomed our guests from WDET. This is a little too quiet and it is brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. If you want to support this podcast, you could visit ferndalefriends.org where you could leave a donation 
or you can just like, subscribe, leave a comment, tell your friends about this podcast. We are out there on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And we want to thank you so much for listening. It's a little too quiet. <laughs>